Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch, real bourbon, no apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Campari America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm getting over a cold, so I think I'm going to be editing out a lot of coughing and sniffling in this episode. But to, earlier today, I was interviewed for the podcast Already Gone. Nina was on our episode on Mikkel Biggs, and she's doing a series that's called the Women's True Crime Broadcast, and she's interviewing a variety of women who have true crime podcasts. So. I'll be sure to post online when it's live, but definitely go over and check out Already Gone. And also a quick reminder that we will both be at CrimeCon in June 2017 in Indianapolis, and we'll be there with a ton of other true crime podcasters. If you buy tickets before the first of the year, you'll get a discount, and you can get an additional discount of 20% off your ticket using the code INSIGHTFUL20. Our story tonight is mostly about an unidentified Scottish serial killer known as Bible John. And I want to thank Trixie and Nicola for suggesting this to us. He was on my future episode list, but once I saw more than one listener requesting the same topic, we bumped it way up on our priority list. We're also going to talk about some other Scottish serial killers who were suspected of being Bible John particularly Peter Tobin and Angus Sinclair. A quick warning, our episodes aren't exactly sunshine and roses. However, this story is more graphic than most of them and probably more graphic than all of the ones we've done so far. And another warning, I'm going to try really hard to say Glasgow the whole time, but if a Glasgow slips out, feel free to address the angry emails to the American lady who can't talk right. I guess I can just hope that my unintelligible accent doesn't distract you from the story. And you can make it fun and just take a shot, turn it into a drinking game. Yeah, that's going to go really poorly for you guys. So let's talk about Bible John first and kind of set the stage of Glasgow in the 1960s. World War I and World War II provided a lot of industrial jobs for Glasgow, Glow, Glasgow, and the surrounding areas, though it was also at the price of being a target for air raids. In the 1960s, Glasgow was in an economic decline as shipbuilding started being commissioned overseas, like in Japan. There were also concerns about the gangs in Glasgow being younger and more violent than previous generations. Heading into the 1970s, industry started really slowing down, going out of business, and unemployment rates were high. There was also an overconcentration of the population in the city core, leading to a housing crisis, 
and it forced some families into single-room tenements or multiple generations of families living together. And that's the situation of the women we're going to be talking about. However, regardless of the economic decline and the struggles of Glasgow, it was still a really happening, active place. Glasgow had many dance halls, and we're going to talk about one of them right now, the Barrowland. The Barrowland Ballroom was and actually still is a popular dance hall slash music venue on the east side of Glasgow. It was built in 1934, and it had stayed open during World War II, but they had to take the big neon sign down after it was rumored that German planes were using it to guide them on their bombing missions over the UK. The original building was lost to fire in 1958, and the current building was opened in 1960, and this is the time frame we're talking about, 1968 and 1969, when three women were found murdered after nights out at the Barrowland. I guess we should say at the top, it's not for sure that these three murders are linked. There are some really startling similarities But there is no forensic evidence that links the three of them. But Allie, after looking into it, before we even start, what are your thoughts about whether or not they're linked? There are a lot of similarities. To me, too much for it not to be the one person, but I'm sure we'll get into that a bit later. Yeah, I'm working with the theory that they're linked. So if I sound like I'm making a assumptions about Bible John being a singular killer. It's uh, basically because I am, but that is going to be how we're presenting it going forward. So I wanted to get that out at the top of the episode. I don't think when we get into the similarities, I don't see how there is any other option than it is connected. Right. So the first victim we're going to talk about was Patricia Docker, and she was a 25-year-old nursing auxiliary, which is known as a healthcare assistant today. She was living with her four-year-old son with her parents on the south side of Glasgow. She was separated from her husband, who was a corporal in the Royal Air Force. She left her son sleeping at home with her parents and went out with some friends from work for the night. She told her parents they were going to the Majestic, which was a dance hall, But at some point in the evening, they either decided to head over to the Barrowland Ballroom or that was the initial plans, but she just didn't want to tell her parents. We don't really know. But we do know because they thought she had been at the Majestic, it got in the way of the investigation in the early days. The next morning, she didn't arrive home, and a 64-year-old who lived in her neighborhood was headed from his home to his garage-slash-workshop when he saw a battered, nude body in front of his garage door. He called the police, and they arrived around 8 a.m. She was literally yards from her home. She had been left beaten, raped, and strangled. Her shoes were found nearby, but her clothing, a mustard-knit dress and a duffel coat with a blue fur collar, and her brown handbag were never found. Pat wasn't immediately identified. Even though she was in her neighborhood and she worked at the hospital, She was so severely beaten, and though her parents knew she hadn't come home, they assumed maybe she had just spent the night out with her friends or had slept over. It really wasn't until her father read the evening newspaper and saw the report of an unidentified woman being found that he went down to the police and identified Pat's body. 
Her estranged husband was, of course, investigated. But he had an alibi, and the working theory for the next 18 months was that she likely ran into the wrong person while out that evening. So a year and a half later, we have our next victim, Jemima McDonald, and she was a 32-year-old mother of three. She lived in one of those small, crowded tenements that you were talking about earlier, Charlie. It was literally her and her three children in one room and the kitchen, and she lived in what was considered a bad area of town. Reports vary a little on the timeline. I have read that she went to the Barrowlands on a Thursday or a Friday night, but maybe it was even a Saturday night. But since most accounts do say Friday night, we'll go with that for the sake of our story. So on Friday, August 15, 1969, Jemima leaves her kids at home. Her children were 12, 9 and 7, which it wasn't unusual to leave your kids home by themselves at that age in those times. And Jemima went out dancing at Barrowlands. She was seen leaving the Barrowlands around midnight with a tall, well-dressed man. The following day, a Saturday, Jemima's sister Margaret, and Margaret lived in the same building as Jemima and the kids. But Margaret hears some rumours from some children in the area that they found a body in a run-down tenement that was mostly home for the homeless. And then it's Sunday, and Jemima still hasn't returned. Margaret thinks it's odd that her sister left the kids for so long without making arrangements with either herself or a neighbour, but reportedly she just thought that maybe Jemima, who was a romantic and she was always looking for love, maybe Jemima met someone and she was with him for the weekend. So she decides to give it one more day. By the time Monday rolls around and Jemima still hasn't returned, she was getting so worried that she went to visit the old building for herself. And that's where she found Jemima's beaten and bruised body. She had been strangled and raped. The difference between Patricia and Jemima, though, is that Jemima was fully clothed, but her clothes were torn and pulled up. Her black handbag was also missing. As part of their investigation, police conducted door-to-door inquiries at the time, and one of the residents do remember hearing screams coming from the tenement building, although she couldn't remember the time. So because of the lack of solid leads and no one else coming forward, the investigation wound down. The third victim that was linked to Bible John was Helen Puddick, and she was a 29-year-old woman. Like the other two women, she had young children. However, she was married. Her husband was a serviceman, and they had just returned from a posting to Germany, and they were living with her mother. On Thursday, October 30th, 1969, just two months after Jemima's murder, Helen and her sister, Jean, went out for the evening. I saw this interview with her husband uh, 30 years after the murder, probably. Yeah, I saw that too. He said he hadn't been entirely thrilled with the idea of her going out. The Barrowland had a reputation at the time of being somewhere that married people would go and, you know, kind of forget they were married for the evening. But Helen was energetic and full of life, and he didn't want to hold her back, and she assured him it was fine. So he gave them money so that they could take a taxi home. The sisters went out for drinks before heading to the Barrowland to dance. Both of them met men that night, and both of the men gave their names as John. One of the men said he was from Castle Milk, 
so he eventually became known as Castle Milk John. At the end of the night, Jean's Castle Milk John headed to the bus station to go home. Jean, Helen, and Helen's John got in the taxi, and the cab dropped off Jean first. The taxi driver was a new driver, so he took some wrong turns and he said Helen got impatient, so she just had him let her off to walk the rest of the way home. The remaining John also got out after her, and he had grabbed her arm when he got to her, like he had to cross the street to get to her, and he grabbed her arm, and the cab driver said she kind of resisted, but he assumed it was a lover's spat, and he drove off. Helen's body was found the next morning by a man who was walking his dog. She was in the back courtyard area of her flat. She was raped and strangled. Her coat was pulled up over her, and the contents of her handbag were scattered all around, but the handbag was missing. There are signs that Helen put up a hell of a fight. There was semen left behind, which in 1969 wouldn't be as helpful as it would be today. Am I right in thinking that Castle Milk John never came forward? Castle Milk John never was identified, and I know that the police did want to talk to him. There is some, I don't know, conjecture out there that possibly he was married and coming forward would admit that he was out dancing with other women. So he never did come forward. But I know the police would like to talk to him even now. Because the implication I keep seeing is that the two men knew each other. And I know it's exceedingly unlikely, but has anyone raised the possibility that Bible John could be more than one person working together, like two men, a team? I have a theory on that that we'll talk about when we get to Angus and Claire. So I will put a pin in that for the moment. Yeah, let's go ahead and put one of our pins in that. So there are a few similarities in these crimes that some say link them. Firstly, all three women had spent the night that they were murdered at the same dance hall at the Barrowland Ballroom. Secondly, all three were strangled and most likely with their own clothing. Each body was left very closely to the victim's home. The handbags of all three were taken after the murder, possibly as souvenirs. Even in the case of Helen, where the contents were left behind, the killer still took the empty handbag, and all three victims were menstruating, and sanitary napkins were found near the bodies. He actually left Helen's the closest to her, underneath her arm, which says to me that it was something that was becoming increasingly important to him. It is a really odd coincidence. I kind of wonder how he would have known that they were all menstruating, though it seems to be something linking the crimes. And we're talking the 1960s here when the sanitary napkins had a garter attached, so maybe he saw that. Maybe he had, we'll probably get into this later, but maybe he actually attacked more than the three women here, but he didn't kill them because he could rape them without. That's a good point. Even just from dancing, if he got a little handsy, he might have been able to feel the belt under the clothes. Maybe. There is a report that Jemima was seen leaving the Barrowland with a man who was between the ages of 25 and 35 with reddish hair, and a sketch was released of this man. 
Jean, the sister of the third victim, had a very good look at the man who would become known as Bible John. She and Helen had spent the evening with him and Castle Milk John, and they also shared that cab ride home. She gave a detailed description of the man in the taxi, fair, reddish hair, tall, thin, and well-dressed. So she sat down with a sketch artist, and they had a painter make a more lifelike portrait of the man she described rather than just those pencil sketches. I've seen it both reported that John never gave his last name or that Jean thought he used the last name Simpleson or Templeton. And if he did give a last name, that'll become a clue later on. Yes. Also, due to his manners and demeanor, it was believed that he was possibly a soldier. Many soldiers were on leave in Glasgow at that time, and they were questioned. Others have reported he may have flashed a warrant card, which in the U.S. we call police credentials, while he was in the Barrowlands. Whether this was real or fake, who knows, but it did lead to speculation that he may have been a police officer. So now we get to his nickname, Bible John. This did not come from the police, as these serial killer names often come. They come from the media. Jean said that the man in the taxi was quoting the Bible. In interviews given by police, it it seems like this was blown out of proportion as to how significant these Bible verses were. The biblical quotes he used were also phrases that are common, such as calling the barrel land the, quote, den of iniquity. Basically, it wouldn't have required you to have a really strong religious background to know and use these phrases. However, the name stuck. So we have this description of a Bible-quoting, fair, red-headed, tall, thin man, except that the bouncers at the club who remember the group because they had an issue with the cigarette vending machine that they were trying to use, and these bouncers gave a counter-description. The cigarette machine had taken the money, and Bible John was getting upset that he couldn't get his money back. They told him come back the next day for it, which he never did. But they say that he had dark hair and he was short, which is the complete opposite of tall, fair, redheaded. So while the police did release the full painted portrait of the man Jean described, some have said in later interviews that they questioned her recall. She had just found out her sister died. Several hours had passed, if not days at this point, or a day. She had been drinking that evening. So regardless of any apprehension, the painted portrait is what went out, and it went far and wide. I do have to wonder if the bouncers were aware which person they were seeing, though. I mean, is it possible that their conflict over the money for the cigarettes and the vending machine was actually with Castle Milk John and not Bible John. I mean, I don't know. Oh, that's a good point. This whole sketch thing led me down the rabbit hole of witness sketches in general. So after all, we know and accept that eyewitness testimony can be inaccurate. And we know that witnesses can often identify the wrong person after the fact. So it made me think that recalling a face and describing it to someone else who then processes it into a sketch would actually be less accurate. 
and not to brag, it turns out I was right. So one look at the accuracy of sketches put hand-drawn sketches at 9% providing a recognizable sketch. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were looking for in this in this study is a recognizable sketch. So hand-drawn 9%. When using a computer, drops to 5%. Computers just aren't as good at conceptualizing a face on the whole as artists are. A computer is just putting pieces together. And this is totally off topic here, but I agree with that because when you look at the age progression of missing people and when on the occasion when they do turn up, the age progression generally looks nothing like the real person. So what leads to this? And it seems to come down to our memory storage. So when we see someone, we don't store a picture of them in our recall memory. We store it in our recognition memory. When we see them again, we'll recognize them but we can't necessarily describe them from scratch. We don't see blue eyes, heavy lids, straight nose, full lips, cleft chin. We see a face. Some features might stand out. However, on the whole, we don't process individual features. Yet when most people sit down to give a description to the sketch artist, they're asked to do just that, describe individual features. I just know myself, if I was asked to sit down and even describe my husband, who I've known for 15 years, I would be hopeless at it. I'd be like, he has green eyes. He's got a nose. It'd be a hard thing to do, especially when you're under pressure and you're emotional. Well, yeah, think about someone you've only met once, maybe a co-worker's spouse at a dinner party. You're sitting at a company dinner with them and you can picture this person in your head right now. And you would recognize them if you saw them again. But can you really describe them with detail? Exactly. What color were their eyes? What about their eye shape? What about the arch of their eyebrows? Can you really describe that? So when we're talking about a sketch with a distinguishing feature like a large mole or a tattoo, it's a little bit easier for us to remember these things because they stand out. However, our mind also has a habit of exaggerating them. A small mole becomes a large mole. A small tattoo on the hand ends up being half a sleeve. So a small mole becomes a big mole, that sort of thing. I think when we're looking at these sketches, what we need to do is look for the thing that stands out. In the Mikkel Biggs case, that man had a really high hairline. Maybe that's a distinguishing feature we need to be looking at. With the Beaumont children, that man had an unusually long face shape. In this case, with Bible John, I would say that red hair would be the defining feature. That's what would stand out. That said, Scotland does have, like, the largest percentage of red-headed people in the world, so it might not be quite the standout feature it would be elsewhere. This is what happens when we take a week off and I have extra time to get into the weeds. So let's jump into the suspects a little bit. These are the known suspects, whether they're known to the police as suspects or people have started connecting some dots with them, or even in one case, I started connecting some dots with one. So let's go ahead and start with those. Okay, so the first one we have is John McGuinness. He was considered a person of interest at the time of the murders. He came from a religious household, and according to the book Blood Ivy, He disapproved of mothers leaving their children with babysitters and going out dancing. 
McGuinness committed suicide in 1980 at the age of 41, and later, when DNA was tested from the semen taken from Helen, it came back a partial match to a relative of McGuinness. And it seemed more likely that McGuinness was at least guilty of one of the murders. McGuinness's body was exhumed on February 1st, 1996, so that a DNA comparison could be done due to the advances in technology. However, the test came back as inconclusive and no match was able to be made. This was because the DNA sample taken from Helen had become so degraded over the years and McInnes's body had also become so badly decomposed. So officially, McInnes has been cleared, but there must be some doubts related to these findings. I guess it seems we will need to wait for better technology before it can be tested again. And I did read that Jean reportedly suspected that McInnes may be responsible for the murders, However, he was present for one of the many lineups that Jean sat through, and she never picked him out of any of them. Yeah, her granddaughter said this is the only guy she really mentioned, though she didn't exactly say that he did yes. it. She said she he she didn't really talk about it much at all. Which is understandable. You might read that her son said she had a deathbed revelation that it was Peter Tobin or whatnot, but his, the rest of the family has discounted that that happened. In one article, it was said that Helen's husband, George, thought authorities should take a look at Peter Sutcliffe, who is also known as the Yorkshire Ripper. So let's go ahead and look at him. He was about the right age, and he had his first recorded assault on a prostitute in 1969. That said, I think Sutcliffe would be a reach. First, his initial victims were all prostitutes. It wouldn't be until the late 70s before he began attacking women who weren't in that vulnerable position. Second, he operated in and around Leeds, which is a four-hour drive from Glasgow. It's unlikely it was him, though I'm always a fan of it all being one person rather than thinking there were multiple serial killers in the UK all operating at the same time. Yes. But really, if you look up Bible John, if you look at any article about Bible John, there is one suspect who rises to the top, and that is Peter Tobin. Tobin grew up in a large family in Scotland, and he was troubled from the start. And that's an understatement. He was at a reform school at the time called an approved school at seven. Throughout his teens, he was involved in petty crimes, and he spent some time in an institution for juvenile offenders. He would initially come across as charming, and he married three times. However, his sadistic side would come out after they became more involved with him. He was a truly terrifying person, and I find it amazing that his wives all lived to divorce him, with the level of control and violence he displayed in his marriages. To give you an idea, his first wife was left unable to ever have children after one particularly horrific assault. In 1989, Tobin was 43, and he was married to his third wife. She was the 17-year-old mother of his son. His wife eventually fled with their young son and moved in with her grandparents. Tobin moved closer to them so he could see his son, and he was always a doting father, and he was never violent towards his son, and so his ex-wife agreed to some visits. In 1993, Tobin had his five-year-old son over for a visit. 
Two 14-year-old girls came to his apartment building to visit another tenant who wasn't home. Tobin talked them into coming into his apartment, quite possibly using some ploy like he wanted to hire them to babysit or some such. And at least one of the girls already knew him, so she felt safer. And it makes sense that he got them to come into his house and wait because of his son. I think maybe he would seem more trustworthy that way. Exactly. An adult, a man with his child, would seem safer than just some man trying to get you into his apartment. And Tobin was known for being charming, so he probably used this to kind of disarm them a bit and get them in the door. And once inside, he plied them with alcoholic drinks, and he attempted to get them to take some pills. They later said that they faked taking them, but the alcohol was probably spiked anyway. They had tried to get up and had trouble standing. One of them lost consciousness, and the other was threatened by knife point to take additional pills. At some point in this evening, after the girls were incapacitated, Tobin called his ex-wife and said he was sick, he couldn't take care of their son, and could she come get him? So when she arrived, she said he met her right at the door with their son, and she offered to take him to the hospital, but he declined. She went home with her son and just went to bed. So I just, not to dwell on this, but his son witnessed everything up to this point, and we don't know how much more he possibly witnessed. At some point in the evening, Tobin raped the girls. It wasn't until the next morning that one of them regained consciousness and she wasn't able to wake up her friend, so she ran home and the police were called. The unconscious girl was admitted into the hospital and she did pull through. The police noticed that the gas fireplace was on, but the flame had been blown out, and it's believed that he did this in an attempt to kill the girls. Tobin was nowhere to be found. He spent some time under a fake name in a religious community, and he eventually returned to the area and was arrested. He pled guilty and spent 10 years in jail. The attempted murder charges were what were dropped when he pled guilty. Yeah. So in 2004, Peter Tobin's released. He was a registered sex offender and was supposed to report to the police every time he moved. I'm sure it'll shock no one that he didn't do this. He lived a nomadic life and he was mostly off the grid, changing his name regularly. He used something like 40 fake names over his lifetime. Two years after his release from jail, he was homeless and he was going by the name Pat McLaughlin. He became involved with a charity in Glasgow called Loaves and Fishes. And as you can imagine, this was a group that helped feed the poor. They worked out at St. Patrick's Catholic Church, and he was described as quiet, helpful, and he eventually became, began working as a general handyman at St. Patrick's. Also working at St. Patrick's was a Polish student, 23-year-old Angelika Kluk. She was spending her summer break in Glasgow, and she worked at St. Patrick's to earn money for school. On Monday, September 25th, 2006, she was reported missing. She had last been seen the day before in the company of Tobin. Tobin was interviewed, but he seemed completely fine, had no idea what happened to her. But the next day, he bolted. On the news, pictures of both Angelica and Tobin were shown. 
though Peter Tobin was named under his alias, Pat McLaughlin. A former neighbor of Tobin's called the police and said, right guy, wrong name. They eventually found out that Tobin had checked himself into the hospital under the alias of James Kelly. It wasn't until Friday that Angelica was found, and she was found under a hatch in the floorboards of the church near the confessional. She had been beaten, raped, and stabbed before being wrapped and placed under the floorboards. It's believed she was probably attacked in the garage, and then after Tobin concealed her, he continued on to work his dinner shift with the loaves and fishes. Tobin was arrested, his DNA was matched, and he was convicted after a six-week trial in the spring of 2007. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with a mandatory time of 21 years. So this is just how Peter Tobin got caught. The story of Peter Tobin is not over. The police knew that these pieces really didn't make sense. Yeah. Various aspects suggested to the investigators that this was not a first-time murder. He acted quickly, effectively. He concealed the body without any signs of hesitation. Well, it obviously didn't. He went back to his dinner shift right after disposing of Angelica's body. And he was 60 years old. That's kind of an odd age to just start raping and murdering. Exactly. So they launched Operation Anagram, where they worked on tracing the comings and goings of Peter Tobin and his various aliases over the course of his life, and then matched that against unsolved crimes against women to look for overlaps. And through this, they came across the case of Vicki Hamilton. Vicki was a 15-year-old girl heading home after spending the weekend with her sister in February of 1991. She had to change buses, and she was last seen at that bus stop. Operation Anagram led investigators to one of Tobin's old residences where they found Vicky's remains buried in the backyard, as well as a knife with her DNA on it up in the roof portion of a loft area. In 2008, he was convicted of her murder 17 years after her disappearance. But that's not all they found in that backyard. After uncovering Vicky's remains, a few days later, they found the remains of Dinah McNichol. She was an 18-year-old college student who disappeared in August of 1991. She had attended a music festival with friends and met a man and decided to stay for an extra day, but her friends had already gone home. So she and this man decided to go ahead and hitchhike home, and her male companion was dropped off. Dinah and the man giving her a ride continued on, and that was the last anyone had seen of her. To muddy the waters a bit, money was withdrawn from her account at various locations. Those who knew her were sure it wasn't her. She was saving her money for school and travel. She shopped thrift stores. She kept purchases to a minimum. She just didn't spend her money if she didn't have to. So it didn't make sense that she would then wander around slowly draining her own account. And these weren't just $5 here, $10 here. It was 250 pounds at a time that was being taken out. So that kind of makes me wonder if that was just like the daily amount or the location amount limit that you can take out of an account. Yes, makes sense. Yep. Tobin was tried and convicted of Dinah's murder. He still claims he wasn't involved in any of these murders, even though police believe he was involved in even more than these. 
So Operation Anagram is still trying to link him to these other unsolved cases and police have released photos of a few dozen pieces of jewellery that they believe that Tobin may have kept as trophies. So let's think about this for a minute. His first known murder was at the age of 45 and the average age of a male serial killer to start is 27. I think it's likely that he did kill before Vicky. However, they have been unable to definitively link him to any more missing women or unsolved murders, although there are probably 30 to 40 possible cases based on the reports of missing and murdered women and where Tobin was at the time these women went missing or were killed. There is no evidence definitively linking Tobin to Bible John. The DNA from Helen Puddock's underwear, it's degraded to the point that it's really unusable with our current technology. None of the women's items, like their missing handbags, were found. And none of the jewelry in Tobin's stash matched known pieces the women owned. However, many still believe that Peter Tobin and Bible John are one and the same due to some circumstantial evidence. So first, Tobin would have been 21 years old at the time of the first murder, so he's in that vague age range. He did live in Glasgow at the time of the murders, and he left shortly after the murders stopped. He was known to go to Barrowland Ballroom, and he even met his first wife there. His first wife also stated that the time of her period was a time of increased violence in their marriage. Many people think his younger photos resemble the sketch of Bible John. Through the work of Operation Anagram, women who believe they met Tobin in the Barrowland in the late 60s, and at least one who believes he was her rapist, have come forward. Yes. And if Jean had indeed said Bible John's last name was Sempelson, it is interesting to note that one of Peter Tobin's aliases was John Semple. So, Ali, what do you think? I really go back and forth whether I think the composite does look like a younger Tobin. I mean, out of all the suspects, he is the closest, but I don't think it's as sure of a thing as other people do think it is. I do think that Tobin may have been too young to be Bible John, but again, that composite does look very youthful so maybe it could have been a 21 year old Tobin I mean that's it's very circumstantial but that's the case in favor of Bible John yeah and Tobin being the same person can you think of anything I left out um I think you covered all the ones I had so there are a few things that make it look like maybe he wasn't and most of them have to do with the MO and the signature of the crime one thing Peter Tobin did is he hid his victims' bodies, and Bible John did not. He left them out in the open. Peter Tobin always used a knife, including on his early attacks with his first wife, and Bible John did not use a knife. And speaking of Tobin's wife, his first wife doesn't believe that he is Bible John, and she says that it's because that they were away on their honeymoon in England at the time Jemima was murdered, And it's not a case here of her wanting to believe he's innocent or being in denial of what he's capable of, because she does admit that he was very violent and she wasn't surprised that he was found guilty of the murders he was convicted of. 
I guess it could be a case of her not remembering dates correctly, but I personally don't think so. Yeah, she has no inclination to lie on his behalf at all. No. Not after what he did to her. So Peter Tobin was has been reported anywhere between 5'6 and 5'8, which is hardly what would be considered tall, like Bible John was considered tall. Peter Tobin also drugged his victims, and there's no evidence that Pat, Jemima, or Helen were drugged. And in fact, based on Helen's fighting back, it's very unlikely she was drugged. Now that said, he could have started drugging them because Helen fought back. Maybe. Because when we go back to, there was a lady you mentioned before, uh, Patricia Chambers, that she that came forward and said that in 1968, when she was 15, she was attacked and raped. Patricia said she met a man at the Barrel End Ballroom and he called himself Jim McLaughlin. And she believed that she had this gym spiked her drink because the next thing she remembers is that she's being dragged into an alleyway and she's and he is screaming obscenities at her thankfully in her case some people were walking past and saved her and Jim McLaughlin ran away but she does believe that her attack is linked to Bible John and Tobin did use that name McLaughlin previously like I said about Helen's sister Jean she didn't die until 2010 and so she was certainly aware of Peter Tobin and all of these guys and she didn't identify him that said it was decades later what are your thoughts on Peter Tobin as Bible John as you know Charlie I've been back and forth with him right throughout the last couple of weeks I'm at a stage now I don't think it's him I think that it could be someone in the military that was on leave and then went back to leave and that's why the murders stop went back to work and that's why the murders stop but I mean I think he I think Tobin is just an evil horrible man and I hate to believe there's more out there like him I just don't know when I first started looking into this I'm like okay so this is going to be a case of we don't know who he is but he's probably this guy but the more i looked into it i'm not convinced that peter tobin that knife torture was part of tobin's mo and i mean you might even call it a signature at that point and bible john never used that i i feel like the attacks are so different except that he was in the right place and killers do evolve and they do change but I don't think it's the case here. Even with large gaps in between, a knife was Tobin's thing. Even on his wife, that's what he used. So I'm actually going to throw my own theory into the mix, and I didn't really see him named very much. I found him because I went through a list of Scottish serial killers. And man, you guys have quite a few for your population size, so I'm just going to say that right now. We are kind of scared. We're kind of scared of Scotland now, but we love you. The man that I found is a serial killer named Angus Sinclair, and he was convicted of what's known as the World's End murders because the victims had been at a bar called the World's End the night before they died, which kind of sounds familiar. And like Peter Tobin, he was a troubled child. He stole from the church. He broke into places. And when he was 15, 16-ish, he killed a seven, seven or eight-year-old girl. 
and he served six years of a 10-year sentence for it. He was released in 1967, and then 68 and 69 are when the Bible John murders occur, and then in 1970, he got married. So in 1977, he gave 17-year-olds Helen Scott and Christine Eady a ride after a night out at the World's End Pub in Edinburgh. Their bodies were found the next day, and one was nude and one was partially nude. They were raped, beaten, strangled, and bound with their own clothing, and their bodies were not concealed. So this is kind of sounding more like Bible John to me at this point. Yep. And he's suspected of killing four additional women, two in their 30s and two in their 20s, and all from Glasgow, though he's not been convicted of those crimes. However, they all died after a night at the pub or at a dance hall. And then in 1978, he, ki- he killed another girl in Glasgow, a 17-year-old, Mary Gallagher. She was also raped, beaten, and strangled with a piece of her own clothing. In this case, he also slit her throat. All of this happened, and he was going undetected this whole time. But in 1982, he pled guilty for multiple counts of sexual molestation and he was sitting in prison when the DNA linked him to some of these murders that he was suspected of. And like Peter Tobin, investigators launched a full-on investigation into his past to try to link him with some others, and they this was called Operation Trinity. So the ways he's like Bible John is his overall M.O., It's believed by authorities that Angus Sinclair had an accomplice in the later murders, who was his brother-in-law, Gordon Hamilton. So, like Ali said earlier, this possibility that maybe Bible John worked as a pair, that would fit with Angus Sinclair. That makes sense to me, the two men working together, uh, using maybe using the more intelligent and attractive member, the Bible John Quota, as the pickup artist, and the more violent and sadistic member as a disposal man. Yeah, the, the fact that besides the last victim, it didn't seem that the other victims put up much of a fight. So unless they were drugged, it seems to me that it could be possible two people were involved. Yeah, Hamilton died before he was ever charged. So the evidence against him hasn't been tested in a court of law. And also Sinclair's victims also tended to be younger. All of the child molestation charges were on children under the age of 11. And the only murders he was actually convicted of were teenagers, even though he is suspected in the murders of four adult women. He also did something Bible John didn't do, which is he would, all of his, all his victims were found bound. Now, kind of like the Peter Tobin starting drugging people, that doesn't necessarily push me away from it because the last Bible John victim fought back and drugging or binding them may have just been a practical change to control the victims better. Exactly. He could have got the warning after the last victim and said, well, I need to do something so next time this doesn't happen and maybe then drug them or bind them. Right. It it seems like something that would be a practical change. So, I mean, I don't know who Bible John was. I do think that there was 
a single killer or killers. I think all three of those women, their murders were linked. It just seems way too much for it not to be linked. Exactly, because if I if I calculate correctly, the chances of picking out three random women and they're all being on their period, I read somewhere that it was something like one in 243 chance. So it in most likelihood, it wasn't a chance encounter. Yeah, and I don't know why Peter Tobin is the universal favorite when I really think Angus Sinclair fits quite a few of the pieces. I don't know if it's because he was just not as high profile. I mean, he at least fits as much as Tobin does in my mind, so maybe I'm missing something, but but I still more or less lean towards the military man on leave theory. Yeah. I mean, if Basically, you know, not what anyone wants to hear, but maybe Bible John really just was never caught. I know. To me, the question has to be is, was he taking out a lot of women and only killing those on their period? Or did he go out to Barrowland and deliberately pick only those he knew were on their period, like feeling a garter belt or seeing it, and then killing them for whatever reason? Like he got mad because he couldn't have sex with them or something along those lines. Yeah, I definitely think that the menstruation thing is not a coincidence. I mean, did he think that I don't want to be responsible for killing an unborn baby and this was the only way he knew that they weren't pregnant? I don't know. That's a good point. All right, so that is our episode on Bible John, and I want to thank everyone for listening. You can find us on Facebook. We have a page and a group. We're pretty active on both, but the groups let us be a little bit more personal with our listeners, so I definitely recommend joining that. You can talk to me on Twitter at InsightfulPod, and Instagram, you can talk to Allie at InsightPod. Our email's InsightfulPod at gmail.com, and our website is InsightPod.com. We are still, we as an Allie, are still working on building the site and we as an alley put up articles and documentary and book reviews and i've put up some supplemental information about some of our episodes and if the app you listen to has a way to review us please leave us a review we also want to spend, send a special shout out to our patreon supporters and so we'll see you next week for our halloween episode